Well, today we're, started, we're finishing off, rather, our series on holiness. So we've been joining with Every Nation Churches around the world, examining what holiness is and what it means to be set apart, uh, not just for God's purposes in some kind of uh, missional kind of way, which is also true, but to be set apart for a relationship with him. And so we've said that, um, that holiness is relationship in its purest form. We've talked specifically about the idea of holiness meaning to cut or to separate. It's what the word literally means. When God says that he's holy, he means he's cut himself off from some things in order for other things to thrive and grow, known as relationship. Well, now what we've uh, come to is the final um, sermon, which I'm entitling the final cut, which I think is very clever. Uh, in, uh, we're looking at Romans 21, sorry, Revelation 21 and 22. We're going to just be focusing on Revelation 21, verses 2 to 8. So let's read this and then make some comments about it. Uh, verse 2, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this. And I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Wow, there's a full mixture of the most amazing things and also the most sobering things, all in a very short passage. So what is this holy city? That's our first question. What is the holy city? Well, if you uh, identify yourself as a follower of Jesus, it's you. We, as Christians, are this holy city. We're described as the culmination of all human history is for us to be uh, wed, the, the, the bride, the church, to be wed to Jesus Christ, and it's what all of human history has been leading towards, a marriage that's purified from sin and its effects. Just imagine a relationship where there's no division. There's no need to be self-protected. There's nothing to guard or be suspicious of. It's being fully known and fully knowing who the living God is. I love how in verse 4 it describes the effects of God's holy love. You know, we think of holiness sometimes in negative terms, but listen to this. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. There's, there's no separation. There's no more death. There's no more crying or pain. There's, there's no more hurt. Can you imagine that? I remember uh, I became a Christian in my early teens, And I was fascinated by these verses. It went on to Revelation 22. And I would read them over and over and over again, uh, almost in a sci-fi kind of way, being being enthralled by this idea of another kind of universe, another kind of earth in which 
there's only purity. There's only goodness. There's nothing stained. There's nothing to worry about. Nothing to be afraid of. Uh, Nobody gets hurt. I don't know about you, but that's, that's worth holding out for. Um, I think that uh, Pastor Tim might have used this analogy a little while ago. It's uh, Francis Chan. Uh, some of you may know, if you ever want to hear a great speaker, I really recommend him. He describes, um, well, building off of this verse, he describes kind of our eternal existence as being a rope that if I was holding here, it would go off the stage and on forever. And uh, the part that you and I experience here on earth right now is, is the tip of the rope. And we put so much stock and value in this short amount of time, and we should, I suppose, but really, in light of all that, is, uh, that, that lies in front of us, it's a very short amount of time. And that what God has in store for us is to use this moment to decide where the rest of our eternity will end up, to be with him or not. It was a while ago I was uh, meeting with somebody who was having difficulties in their marriage. And it was really challenging. And he wasn't sure what to do. And I'm not sure that this was very good advice, but it it came into my head. And so I said it to him. Um, I said, you know, it's only 80 years. Like, I, okay, it, you have a horror. It's just 80 years. Well, it's actually much shorter than that, but it, it's not going to be long. And we base so much of our happiness on what happens in the next few years, and God is trying to use this moment simply to prepare us for an eternity with him. And in light of that, any suffering that we would endure is, is really just a pinprick of all that God has in store for us as his children. And it feels like there's a, uh, there's a, uh, we're so afraid of pain. We're so afraid of mourning and death. And it's just a, it's just a minute. And there's going to be with God an eternity of beauty and glory and goodness that will, every day, we're going to be amazed at how incredible it is. Heaven is the fulfillment of all of our heart's longings. So this is the, uh, this is the goal of holiness, uh, that we would be in pure relationship with God. Now, what is the final act of love that God performs in order for that to become a reality? Well, we read in verse 8 that God destroys the unfaithful. Now imagine this. Uh, you and I, I'm sure, at least I do, when I think of, of love, I only think about unity, tolerance, peace, acceptance, uh, forgiveness. I think of everything that's inclusive and kind and merciful. And what we find in Revelation is the final thing that God does to ensure that love would win is he destroys those who destroy the earth, as it's described in Revelation chapter 11. And it's his guarantee to his people that there will never be a barrier between him and us or us and one another again. It's all done. 
And everyone who commits themselves to be unfaithful to God, to do their own thing, I will insist that they be destroyed. And they must be for love's sake. So, of course, in our narrow understanding, only understanding this much of eternity, we look at that and we might think, that's horrible. Why would God ever do that to anyone? Um, Well, first of all, I think that we do it all the time in perhaps more subtle ways. But I think particularly of parenting. And so, uh, you know, we have a few children. And, uh, and we talk about there being kind of four levels of discipline. The first level is just to be, is just to enjoy a relationship. And so much can change in a child's heart if you simply enjoy your children. It's amazing how therapeutically helpful that is for them and for you. But sometimes they insist on doing something that's unloving. And so you call their attention to that and you invite them to change. Stage two. Stage three is they still say no. And then you say, and then you give them an alternative. You give two options. You go, well, you can either do what I'm inviting you to do or this is the consequence. And then sometimes it goes all the way to, to stage four because they still want to do what they want to do. And at that moment, you remove their free will and you make a choice for them. And the reason why you do this is because if you were to tolerate their behavior, it would destroy love and relationship in the home. You can't let that happen. It would be unkind to everyone else to, in the name of mercy and forgiveness, to tolerate evil inside of the home. And so there's a moment where you have to decide for them, since they seem unwilling to do that themselves, and this is now the consequence, and the consequence is typically separating you from the family for a minute, that hopefully you would come to your senses and be able to re-engage in the family in a healthy and constructive way. God gives us this amount of time to decide to turn our hearts towards love and relationship. And then after that time, he says, you've clearly made your decision. I need to honor your decision by letting you separate yourself from me. But it's not going to be nearly what you maybe thought it would be. Because separating yourself from me is separating yourself from the source of love. And outside of me is eternal destruction. You've made your choice. It needs to be honored. And I will make sure that that attitude does not survive in the new heavens and the new earth. I can't let it happen. It would be unkind of me. It's interesting how God describes those who insist on a uh, uh, being unfaithful to God's holy love. They're all things that, that divide from God's love and truth. The cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile. It just, vile means somebody who's extremely wicked, committed to being evil. The murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars. All liars. I mean, we don't need to have a show of hands. But <laughs> all liars are going to be consigned to the, fiery, to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. That does not sound good. Do 
you want to behave that way? I'll send you to a place where everybody behaves that way. And it will be hell. Um, I was in uh, I was in LA this week at a uh, at a meeting, suffering for Jesus, twenty four degrees outside, bright sunny skies. The things we have to do for Jesus are incredible. Sometimes it's uh, great weather and a great group of people to hang out with. It was the uh, it was the uh, it's called the North American Leadership Team for Every Nation. People just getting together to pray and seek God's will for what God wants to do in North America in the coming season. What we did during that time is they actually had, it was only a group of about 30 people, we had, uh, they asked for different people to tell stories about how they came to Jesus and how they um, got called into ministry because it's a bunch of pastors. And one of the people who got to speak was Pastor Bert Thompson, who is the Canadian director of Every Nation. We've been friends since high school. He's spoken in our church. He lives in... Uh, outside of Toronto now. And he talked about coming to Christ. We knew each other in Port Alberni. We both lived at Kerry Hall at UBC. And um, Pastor Rice Brooks, who's one of the founders of Every Nation, came and preached, uh, did a whole kind of evangelistic crusade at UBC. And that's when uh, Burke Thompson came to Christ. This is the verse that, was, uh, that convicted him to become a Christian. James 4, verses 4 to 5. So this is an evangelistic crusade. Imagine uh, a crusade like this today. You are not loyal to God. You should know that loving the world is the same as hating God. Anyone who wants to be a friend of the world becomes God's enemy. Do you think the scripture means nothing that says the spirit that God made to live in us wants us for himself alone? And Pastor Bert says, when I heard those words, I thought I was living in a neutral space, somewhere between having some kind of devotion to God and doing my own thing. And I realized that there was no neutral space. And I was terrified to be separated from the living God. I did not want to be an enemy of God. This, of course, is exactly why I became a Christian. Uh, Knowing that God was loving was a later development When I first became a Christian, it was to avoid hell. That whole burning sulfur, fiery thing did not seem like a good idea. And so if you could get me out of there, great. And I became a Christian simply to avoid hell. Now, we look at that now and we say, well, that's maybe even self-serving. But certainly that's not all that the Christian life is. And of course, it's not. But... What terrifies me is that that's not it at all anymore. You you know, talk to somebody. I don't hear people being afraid of hell. I just don't hear it. Uh, You know, Billy Joe and others, you know, that's where you have a party. And, you know, I I was reading just during worship. Uh, in Acts chapter 2, and uh, Peter says that you've crucified the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and it says that they were pierced to the heart. Wow. 
I mean, I imagine going on the UBC campus today, you know, you know, you crucified the Messiah. Yeah? Probably deserved it, I don't know. Like, no fear of the Lord. No fear of the Lord. And I am, you know, the gospel describes the journey into new life as traveling into death. And the death is, oh my God, I am a wicked sinner that only mercy could deliver me from eternal damnation. The challenge that I have, and the best word to describe it would be pop psychology, not good psychology, is that the kind of message that's being preached right now is, is damaging to our, our, our mental health and well-being. I'm undermining your self-esteem right now, if you haven't noticed. And how will you have positive self-regard with people speaking to you like this? And so, uh, it, not only is it, is it boring, it's actually offensive to think that we might be grouped in with the cowardly and the unbelieving, the sexually immoral, liars, idolaters, and that would be deserving of being eternally separated from God. The message says, uh, James 4, 4 to 5, in this way. You're cheating on God. If all you want is your own way, flirting with the world every chance you get, you end up enemies of God in his way. And do you suppose God doesn't care? The proverb has it that he's fiercely, a fiercely jealous lover. And what he gives in love is far better than anything else you'll find. talking to my son-in-law Connor the other day and he was, uh, he was describing one of the teachers at the School of Campus Ministry. His name is Paul Barker. He's a very good friend, very godly man. He says every morning, he was telling the class, he says every morning I preach the gospel to myself. He says I get up every morning. Can you imagine this? Every morning he gets up and he says I am the worst of all sinners. And he lets that be true in his soul, not just in his mind. And then he says, every morning, I receive the mercy and grace of God afresh. What I don't deserve but desperately need. And I found myself liberated from myself. Not improving myself, but dying to myself. That the life of God could be revealed in me. But I begin that journey with realizing that I've cheated on the living God. I've dishonored the one who gives me breath. And I don't know another way of living the Christian life except in that context. I don't know how to be impressed with streets of gold without recognizing what I deserve. So if that's the the final act of love, the final act of holiness that God once and for all is going to cut off 
all those who are committed to sinfulness. And I do need to say, just parenthetically, um, I believe that hell has eternal consequences, but does not last forever. The Bible describes hell as a fire. It describes it as destruction. It describes it as rot. And all of those things imply an end point. And the theological idea is that if you will not receive Jesus' forgiveness for your sins, then you'll pay for your own sins for as long as that takes in hell. And so the consequences are eternal. You never get out of hell. But you uh, pay for your sin before you're exterminated. Parenthetically. So the question then remains, who makes the cut? Who gets to then go to paradise? Go to this place that is uh, all that the human heart has ever longed for, uh, primarily described as God himself is our reward. Where do we, uh, who makes that cut? This passage describes two characteristics. It says those who are thirsty and those who are victorious. Now, this is a fascinating thought because they're in contrast to one another. Uh, those who are thirsty, it says, to the thirsty, I will give water without cost. So uh, if you're thirsty, he's going to quench you. And what are you thirsty for? We're going to find out in a minute. It's righteousness, right relationship with God and others. But I'm going to give you a free gift. There's no way anybody could earn their way into love. It's, an, it's, a, it's a contradiction in terms. Love can only be freely given. It's never given on merit or it's not love. It's just wages. But God gives us love. Incredible. Forever. And it says to those who are victorious. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Is it free or does it cost? Victory costs something. Victory is a military term. So what does it mean that he gives eternal life with him to the victorious? Well, if it's a military term, what does it mean to be victorious in battle? What it doesn't mean is perfection, where I I know nothing about anything (laughs) battle-like or martial arts. I just, I know nothing. But it's, uh, you're not victorious if you have good footwork. You're not victorious if you're good at sword stuff. <laughs> but you're, you're, you're not good, uh, you're not victorious if you had a good motive. You're victorious if you're still alive at the end of the battle. <laughs> like <laughs> like I, I, had, I had a horrible, you know, thrusting or whatever, and I, my footwork was, but he died first, and that's super good news. I'm victorious. Uh, that's what it means to be victorious. You're not dead. You win. What does it mean to be victorious in relationship? Well, it's similar in that we're not victorious because we were great all the time and had perfect motives and did everything in the right way. It's not about perfectionism. It's that at the end, we were still loving. We were still loving. All the way through, all the difficulties and challenges of relationship, at the end, we stayed faithful and loving 
to God and to others. I think faithfulness is so profound. And I think it's what victory is. And as we talked about earlier, I think it's what holiness is. Matthew 5, 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. There is one thing that God invites us to do, to never stop longing for reconciliation, intimacy, humility, connection with him. One of my good friends, Trevor Patterson, I remember when we were living in, uh, at UBC, Cary Hall, one of the things he would talk about all the time, and I've not forgotten, it was a few years ago now, is he would talk about, because um, when you're in your 20s, you're invincible, and you think you're a rock star Christian. And he says, he says the thing that I pray for more than anything else for myself is that I would, I would die faithful. I love that. Not start faithful, but end faithful. I just think, I, I've thought about that now for decades. I want to be a man who, uh, there's no way I'm going to be perfect. But I want to keep a soft heart toward my father, toward all of you, toward my family. I want to hunger and thirst for righteousness all the days of my life. For as long as he gives me. Now, here's what that means. To hunger and thirst for righteousness. And I mean, it, it, it shouldn't even have to be said, but it needs to be said. That if we hunger and thirst for righteousness, it means we're going to try to do it. We're actually going to try to be righteous. We're going to try to be good. Behaviorally good. We're not going to have some abstract thought of what it means to have a relationship with God and others. And, and I mean it, you know, I'm sincere in my heart. No. It's, I, I so care about honoring God and loving others, I am going to do it very badly and sincerely for as long as I live. I'm going to try to do it. I'm going to try to be behaviorally good. Not to earn his love, but to desperately express my longing to love the living God. You know that, uh, you know that phrase, uh, you cry ugly? Have you heard that before? I think that's super funny. Cry ugly. I think that's a very funny thing to say. Well, what if uh, what God invites us to do is to love ugly? You love ugly. Like, what if it's just always going to be true, but we're always still trying? Isn't that, wouldn't that be incredible? I'm not very good at it. Here we go. As opposed to, I'm not very good at it. I'm going to work on my heart until it looks better. You know, I'm quite convinced that pride hates behavioral requests. Pride hates being asked to do a behavior. Again, have millions of children, you find out. You, you know, you ask a child to do something, and they would have done it 
except now you asked. And now that's made it tricky. You know, it's funny, right? Because it's like, if you would, I mean, if it was hat, I would have done it. But now that you asked, I got to think about it, pray about it, and see whether my heart is good. And so what you do with children is you ask them to do behavioral things that they don't want to do. And you do it with great pain. But you do it because you're trying to help them practice being obedient to Jesus, not you. And you're the practicing ground for them to work through what humility and obedience looks like. And it always, hungering and thirsting for righteousness always looks behavioral. It looks like we would do stuff. And my great fear is that we read that um, that, uh, to the thirsty I will give water without cost. Evangelical church, praise God, I didn't want cost. And they stop there. And somehow, the church needs to grab a hold of behavioral righteousness for the glory and honor of God. And if the church does not grab hold of this, heaven will be a grand disappointment. It will not be what we've all hoped for. To no disrespect to those who, um, who would describe themselves as Muslim. I was just doing this sermon and I, I got more information after the sermon. But in, uh, in Islam, do you know what the reward is for a life of, uh, of obedience to Allah? It's, um, he, he told me, I only knew the first one. It's uh, you get 72 virgins, uh, a river of wine, and a, uh, a mansion. So, heads up, you know, you, uh, Islam is very strict about these, especially wine. You don't drink, and you are to be chaste. And get this, your reward for that is you get to be adulterous, a drunkard, and greedy. Isn't that fascinating? And so I think, uh, heads up, heaven is the opposite of all that. Um, I'm afraid that we're going to be disappointed with heaven. So 72 versions, no unlimited wine, no mansions. Well, I guess, no, maybe we do get the mansions. I don't know. Uh, so, but there's, but that's not what we're thirsting for. We're thirsting for righteousness. We're thirsting for godliness and purity. That's what we're thirsting for. And so, uh, so my concern is for the church, large C, is that heaven will be a grand disappointment. How do you know how do you and I know that we actually want heaven? How do, we, how do we know that? There's one way to know that. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
The way that you and I know that we want heaven is if we hunger and thirst behaviorally for being righteous now. And so that when we get to heaven, we go, this is outstanding. I have longed for this. I have fought for this my whole life to be a godly man or woman, to be righteous, to treat people with dignity. And this is all I've ever longed for. And I'm so afraid that so many in the church will be disappointed with heaven because their heart has longed for hell. To be cowardly and unbelieving and sexually immoral, to lie whenever they can, to go after false gods and to somehow think that heaven would be good news. Such a person will be confined, consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. So here's what's true for us in conclusion. God's holy love promises a final cut. There's a final cut coming for everyone. And he will demand in his holy righteousness that all sin will be abolished. And you and I have to come to grips with that. You and I have to come to grips with the fact that even if he had ill motives, it's still going to happen. If you can get mad at him, it's still going to happen. He's going to condemn the ungodly. <clears throat> Hebrews 9. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many and he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. I, I picture myself as being a very dirty person. I just feel so full of pride and suspicion, ambition, lusts. And I feel like my Christian life is crawling toward God in the mud of my sinfulness, not yours. What's impeding my journey is me, never you. And I want to be found faithful, struggling toward my father. Overwhelmed that he would forgive my sin and never wanting to take that forgiveness as a license for ungodliness and wickedness. Look, everything about your life and about our church would be radically different if we come to grips and be pierced to the heart by our sinfulness. Our gratitude for the gift of salvation would skyrocket. When somebody would insult us, we would not be offended because we know that we deserve fiery sulfur, let alone an offhanded comment. 
it would change everything. We would, uh, we would bring heaven to earth if we could grab hold of this as a community. So who makes the final cut? Luke 18, 8b. When the Son of Man returns, how many will he find on the earth who have, and the message puts in this word, which clarifies it very well, who have persistent faith. Persistent faith. Have you, uh, have you ever seen on YouTube or something where there's some uh, marathoner and they didn't uh, pace themselves out properly, they got dehydrated or pushed too hard in mile 13 or whatever, and then you watch them and they're, they're, like, they look drunk, they're super wobbly, and they're still trying to make it across the line. Have you ever seen those? They're very inspiring, right? I, I think it's, uh, it, it moves me every time. And they're so committed to be victorious and get across the finish line. They look like a fool. They run ugly. And they want the honor of crossing that line. I want to be welcomed to heaven. Not on the merit of my righteousness. I hunger and thirst for righteousness. I want to be a godly man. And if there are behavioral expectations, I'm in. And I'm not going to be insulted by it. I just, I'm almost done. My wife is, uh, she's a very capable and self-sufficient person. And so it's hard for me sometimes to know how to love her because she's doing fine. And then she'll say, uh, could you clean the bathroom? Could you sit with me? Because I need to talk to somebody. She has a behavioral request in our relationship. My heart leaps when I get to discover a tangible and practical way to love my wife. I'm excited to know how. Can we please love to obey Jesus Christ and do what he says? And it would be our honor that he tells us what he likes. And we wouldn't make it about earning his love as if I could ever earn my wife's love. That's impossible. It's a free gift. It always has, by definition, it's what love is. But I'm not going to use that as an excuse to not love him. Let's, oh man, I hope you don't misunderstand me. I so believe in the mercy and grace of God. Would you please let yourself be wicked and try to be righteous? And the forgiveness and the empowering of God will be as beautiful as they truly are if you let, 
if you let yourself be bad and you try to be good. I can't tell you how helpful that will be for you because it's helpful for me every day. So life is a series of cuts, of choices that determine our destination. And so we cut away sin and selfishness. And as we, and we do that because we are, we're making a choice for a righteous relationship with God and others. And so we cut away everything that would impede our commitment to that end. And the beautiful thing about this is that Jesus ensures we inherit a holy relationship with him and others. Because blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. We will be forgiven. We will experience a relationship with God and others that our hearts has always longed for. But could we please, as the people of God, try? Let's pray. Dear Father, you are worthy to be loved and worshipped. You are the source of all that is beautiful and good and right and pure and holy. And you've died for our sins to give us the free gift of eternal life. Let us not mistake what you're inviting us into, a holy, righteous relationship with you and others. Would you please, Father, inspire us to want that, to not treat your mercy as a license for self-indulgence, but to come to grips with our wickedness and enthralled by your beauty and engage our whole self in becoming holy like you are. Please, I ask on behalf of my friends that we would love to do good and in so doing welcome heaven into our hearts and lives thank you jesus